listener production. Okay, are you recording? Hello, hope the sun is shining on you wherever you are and welcome along to episode 21 of the Howie Games. Firstly, I must thank all you out there because your support in listening and spreading the word has meant it's been the show's biggest week by far. Last week's Ricky Ponting episode has broken all our download records, which we're really stoked about. The response from you on social media, at MarkHoward03 on Twitter and Facebook has absolutely blown me away. I sort of wish in some ways Punter himself was on social media so he could see some of it. However, I've shown some of it to him along the way, and he's certainly been touched by all your kind words, so thanks. Please remember, though, subscribing rather than just listening to individual episodes helps our cause enormously, so it'd be cool if you could. Now, on to this week. Very, very excited in the Howie Games camp. Our Big Bash special continues with a fella that has taken the competition by storm, New Zealand cricket superstar, Brendan McCullum. Hey, Crew Pickle and Big Penguin here. Your favourite part of the Howie Games is back. What's their favourite bit, Pickle? We are, Big Penguin. True that. We know you listen for us, not Dad. Anywho, we're pumped. Our man Baz is on. You know, he's one half of the Bash Brothers Pickle. Fastest century, Pengy. Offer only 54 rocks. He smote the ball from Dally to the... From Daddy to the... From Brisbane's... From Brisbane's... From Brisgate... He smote the ball from Delhi to Dunedin, Pickle. From Bris Vegas to Bangalore. I rate his tattoos too. They're so cool. Pickle, Daddy said if you ever get tats, you're straight out the door. He said he would own you. I think he said disown, Pengy. What's that mean, Pickle? Not sure, but it can't be good, Pengy. You've got that right, Pickle. Now, Brendan is admired the world over for his amazing feats on the cricket field with bat in hand. But as he explains in this episode, he hopes it's the way he tried to play the game and lead his country that has had the greatest impact on people. He also talks about the tough times taking over the Kiwi captaincy, legal battles, the World Cup, the passing of Philip Hughes and his phenomenal final test. Welcome to the world of Baz, a man who plays cricket today for the same reason he played it years ago as a little bloke in the backyard, for fun. How cool. Can we go play now? Oh my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. Brendan McCullum, welcome along to the Howie Games. Good to see you. Thanks, mate. Nice to be here. Hey, life's all right. We're sitting here looking over the <laughs> Brisbane River. You're smacking it up for the Brisbane heat. You're in the Big Bash. Things are going okay. Yeah, not too bad. We started well as well. Um, obviously, a little bit a little bit of trepidation from the Heat's point of view about our bowling attack this year. And we knew we had a strong batting lineup, but we weren't quite sure how the bowling was going to go. But I think the guys have stepped up well so far. And It's early in the tournament, but we've started nicely. Chris Lynn struggles in the big bash, doesn't he? He smacks him, doesn't he? Does he hit the Can't ball believe he way? doesn't get more of a gig for Australia. Oh, well, well you, I would just be careful what you say because you'll lose him for the heat if, yeah. uh, if he gets selected. Mate, the way this normally works, we normally start at the start. And I guess for you, um, it was a bit of a cricket household because your old man played a fair bit of cricket, which is, I guess, the way you got into it, mate. Yeah, so he played 70, 76, I think, first class games for Otago. 
Um, I think he was twelfth man for about the same. So he must have been a great tourist. Um, but yeah, so we were sort of my brother and I, who's he's a year older than me. We we're always kind of in and around cricket. Um, and I guess uh, sort of I did a speech last year, the Cowdery lecture, and, and that I sort of tried to take it back to recapturing those younger days. And that's what I tried to do in the final few years of my international career. I think sometimes we can get a bit blinded by, um, you know, the fame and the fortune and mm. the adulation and that, and um, we sort of lose sight of the innocence of why we started playing. And for me, it was very much, you know, just being in and around with the old man's cricket and we're playing on the on the embankment and, you know, people eating cherries and drinking soft drinks. And, and that was kind of, that was cricket um, for, for us when we were growing up anyway. And it was nice to be able to recapture that in the last sort of couple of years of my international career. So how would you go with your bro in the backyard? We always hear about the war boys or the chapel boys in the backyard. What about you and Nath? Um, yeah, so he was actually a seam bowler back in the day. Was he? Yeah, yeah. So he, um, he used to sort of steam in. Uh, I was I was pretty keen to bat. I wasn't much of a bowler. Um and because I was a bit younger as well, I sort of I'd cry foul a lot as well, so I'd often get second chances, um, which is probably why my batting style is what it is now. That you sort of you kind of expect that you might get a second chance, which is why you play so rashly. You got one up your sleeve. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but no, it was good. Like we always we always got on really well. Um, we had a good group of people as well in and around us, sort of similar ages, and we used to play a lot of cricket in the backyard and out on the street. And yeah, it was good fun. Who were you when you were batting? It varied really. Um, Viv Rich Richards was always my go-to. Oh, surprise, um, surprise. Yeah, I uh, absolutely love that man. Uh, Alan Border, funnily enough as well, um, just more because of his sort of stoic kind of, um, you know, his grit and, mm. and his uh, and his nastiness. I sort of, I thought that was, you know, the way he was able to, to change that Australian team um, in that, and what was quite an impressionable sort of age for me as well. Um, and obviously some Kiwis as well, you know, you got Martin Crow and Sir Richard Hadley. Um, Ian Smith, those sorts of guys, they were, they were the ones you always wanted to be in the backyard. Have you ever met Viv? I'm sure you have all in the way. Yeah, I have. He actually sent me a really nice um, message after and video after I got the world record um, Test 100. He he, uh, where he sort of said that if there was anyone that he wanted to break it, then, then it was me, which was pretty cool. I met him in, for the first time um, in a hotel in England um, a few years ago, and yeah, I was just in awe of the man. I think he's just a, an incredible guy, and what he was able to do for cricket... Um, he was before his time, and uh, you know I think T20 he would have been one hell of a oh, T20 player. Imagine him walking out chewing the gum with a big Schlesinger V500 or whatever he used to get around in. Yeah. So at what stage did cricket become reasonably important to you? Now, is it the, the area where you're growing up? Done a bit of reading, and it probably wasn't the poshest part of town. Be fair to say. Yeah, sort of as as history sort of suggests, um, you know, things develop and it's actually quite a nice part of town now. Right. Um, but back in the day, it wasn't the greatest, but we never wanted for much, you know. We we kind of, um, we had a bit of lawn and, and we had uh, we had a pretty quiet street and we had kids in the street that wanted to play cricket and rugby and soccer and all the sports. So we had a great time. You know, it wasn't the flashiest of upbringings, but it was everything that we, that we needed. And I think in a way, you know, it's sort of, it's helped as my cricket career's developed to to just remember those sorts of um, times as well, you know, that when we were just playing cricket or just playing sport um, and it wasn't about all the other stuff. So, yeah, it was a good, it was good fun. Um, you know, it was, it was a pretty cool environment as well. Dunedin doesn't have a whole lot of people, mm. um, but, you know, those that do succeed are those who have, have been driven enough and, and haven't forgotten their roots as well. So what drove you? Well, just playing, to be honest. Um, 
and it wasn't just cricket. Like, I, I wanted to play all sports. I was, I was one of those kids, you know. Mm. And like, to me, it was the camaraderie that sport brought. It wasn't. It might not have been the runs or the wickets or any of that sort of stuff, but it was. It was just playing with your mates, having a laugh, having a joke. That sort of element of competition, which comes into into any sport that you play, and and just spending time with people. I just that's I'm a social kind of guy. Um, I've maintained that throughout my entire career. So um, I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ricky Ponting told me you're a dangerous man any time after nine o'clock at night. <laughs> well, that's when I thought captaincy started, so <laughs> yeah. I sort of had to really embrace it if, I, uh, if I was going to be any good at captaincy. But he's a fine one to talk as well. Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> and Gilly, throw him in as well, crikey. Yeah, but again, like, I think that's the other sorts of guys who I gravitate towards because they play, I mean, they're legends of the game, mm. but they, they never lost that as well. They'd always welcome you into the change room for a beer or a game of golf or just, you know, you walk past them and they'd stop and they'd talk to you. And that's why you know those guys have become good friends as well because they had the same sort of, um, I guess, they, they they played the game for the same kind of reasons, albeit they played at a completely different level, um, you know. And that was that was the same growing up. So it wasn't just cricket; it was all sports. I just wanted to play game. Were you good at school? What were you? Like, what was your interest at school? Did you finish school? Um, interesting story, actually. So I was I was actually reasonably good at school initially, um, and then in my final, my seventh form, I don't know what's what grade is that now? Year twelve. Yeah, year twelve. Um, so I was head boy um, with my best mate. We were co-head boy of our school. In charge? So in charge, captain. yeah. Yeah, yeah, in charge. And I was captain of first 15 and first 11 and that oh. as well. And, that was obviously um, pre-tattoos when they made your school captain. Well, that's that's right. I had a pretty good year that year, um, but I didn't pass school um, bursary or anything because I was more focused on trying to run the school. Mm. Um, and then actually after that, I sort of I was going to take a year to just relax and just try and really enjoy myself. So almost do an OE kind of thing. Problem yeah. was that I did the OE in my own backyard, so <laughs> I went back to school, right. um, repeated um, that year so I could play rugby and cricket and, and just take a bit of time. Um, I, I probably made a lot of mistakes during that year in front of the very people I'd grown up in, so a lot of those people, um, you know, they they sort of they always look at your weaknesses from then on in rather than, I guess, the fact that you've grown into someone a bit bigger. And bit, what do you mean, mistake? like sporting mistakes or life mistakes? Uh, probably more life mistakes. I think a lot of uh, what I love about Noe is that you get out and you make mistakes away from the, the glaring eye of mm. the public. And I was just starting to make inroads into the New Zealand or into cricket or professional cricket at that stage. And I sort of made a lot of just unprofessional mistakes around that time, which some of those within the cricketing circle probably never, never kind of gave me for. So you're moving along, you, you finish school, I think you played uh, Otago, maybe under-17s, first game for them, but we didn't go so well. You, where was your first game when you made Zip and Zip? For Otago? Mm. No, that was my brother. Oh, it was your brother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, oh, well, Wiki's got it wrong, because yeah. it says that you came out and made zero and zero, and it was Nate. No, no, it was him. Right. Yeah, I've, oh, I've, buggery. Touch wood, I haven't bagged him yet. Right. So. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yeah, but he... Uh, he was a shocking starter. Right, <laughs> he was alright once Obviously. he got underway. But no, nah, he went. To, he went naught, naught, and I reckon he got naught, or he was dropped on naught uh, the next <laughs> game as well. Um, but no, nah, I, I was. I think under seventeens, I played some T Twenty stuff. Right, um, or I think it was cricket max back then actually. Yep. Um, the Martin Crow um, oh, brainchild, and which was actually a fascinating game, and, and probably lend itself towards T Twenty. Um, and then I made my debut for Otago as wicketkeeper batter. Then I had knee disease, so I had to take some time off keeping. And uh, that was when I came over to Australia, actually. Well, I actually bunked down, made the New Zealand team as a batter, um, and then got dropped and then came over to Australia. And, 
and met my wife, spent some time in living in Sydney and and uh, and working with Steve Rickson away from the public eye and just trying to get myself fit and strong and, and get my keeping game up to standard, which thankfully I was able to. We should have stayed for the five years and we could have signed you <laughs> up and we could be talking to a 160 test veteran from Australia. Imagine yeah. that. Jeez, I'd have a lot more money. <laughs> you would, but I don't know if you'd be allowed back in New Zealand just quietly. So your first game for New Zealand, when did you get picked and how did you find out? Was it one day? Yep, so it was actually the Tour to Australia. Um, so it was VB Series back in the day, Australia and South Africa, um, 2002. Right. Early January 2002. It was when Shane Bond was running through you fellas. Oh, yeah. Um, so I was playing for I was playing for Otago on one-day cricket. Actually, I made a couple of hundreds opening the batting in four-day cricket off sort of quick time. I hadn't actually done anything in one-day cricket and should never really have been picked, but I got picked, and you're not going to say no. No. Um, so I sort of stepped up and and had an opportunity over here, and um, yeah, it didn't go very well, but I wouldn't have changed changed it for the world because it sort of told me how far away I was from actually being of quality enough to, to play international cricket. Was it overawing, or was it? how did you approach it when you're walking out onto the ground? I guess you're playing against the likes of Ponting and Gilchrist and probably Hayden and those guys. The War Boys were playing. Right. Yeah, Mark War, Steve War, they both played. I think we beat them in my debut at, uh, at the SCG, and then um, I actually dropped a catch off Michael Bevan at the MCG when he was on about 80 and went on and won, won the game. That wasn't great, but Flemo banished me down the fine leg. <laughs> so what's that like when you first step into that and you've been watching these guys on telly and then, bang, you're playing against them and with them, the Kiwi guys as well? Oh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I was my, like miles out of my um, out of my comfort zone. Right. Um, but, you know what, I sort of, it didn't bother me. I, I just wanted to... I, I lapped it up because you're sort of in and around these guys. You, everything that you'd, you'd worked for, everything you'd dreamt of was it was coming to fruition, even though you, you knew you actually, deep down, you weren't good enough to be there at that point in time. For me, I sort of looked at it and it was kind of like an apprenticeship. You're just going to get in there, you're going you're gonna to learn some pretty harsh lessons and in a short space of time, your expectations of myself probably weren't as high as they should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it made me as a cricketer in the end because it it showed me how far I had to come to if I wanted to be serious about making it as an international cricketer. So you said you came over to Australia and spent time with Steve Rickson in New South Wales and, and met your lovely wife. What, what was that? What were you doing in that period of time? Um, yeah, so I actually uh, so I came over and I just came over for a couple of weeks initially um, and then ended up staying for nine months. And, uh, well, seeing I dropped, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> so uh, I actually I went to spend some time, played some grade, uh, grade cricket in Sydney for Belmain. Um, and also went up to Northern Territory, played some club cricket up there. Did you? Um, for Palmerston. Yep. Worked as a furniture remover up there. That was good fun. Hot. Hot. First beers at quarter past eight in the morning up there in Darwin. They don't mess around, do she's, they? She's warm. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I got in some nick, though. Did you? Yeah. Well, it's that, it's that warm. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> furniture removal. Furniture, which is probably why I've got a dodgy back now. Yeah. Um, but it was good fun. Great guys. Had an absolute ball. Earned enough money to be able to sort of get by, um, and then came back down. And yeah, wife and I, we we actually got engaged not that long after before we moved back to New Zealand. And, Where'd you meet uh, the wife? I met my wife on my first tour. Did you? Yeah, at uh, the SCG. I was meant to be running drinks, but I was obviously sort of checking out the birds in the crowd. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I picked the right one. And how do so, you go from checking out a bird in a crowd to meeting her and then marrying her? Well, it's a bit of chivalry, wasn't it? it was sort of back oh, was in the there? day, you actually had to speak to girls, didn't you? Right. right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> no, we just kind of got talking, and then, right. um, yeah, and then, so we were actually staying in Sydney for a few days after, and 
we sort of just hit it off and then kind of just stayed in touch and that was yeah 14 years ago and had three beautiful kids and I've had a amazing wife that supported me all the way through my international career. She's Australian? She's Australian. She's she, done well there for a bloke out of the back blocks in New Zealand to snag an Aussie. She's actually from Lismore, which is, is where she? Gilly's from. It is? Yeah, so her family are in Caniva, uh, which is out by Alan, uh, Adam Gilchrist Oval, which I had to, on Christmas, I had to go out and watch the lights show, all the all the family lights yep. out by there. So I actually texted Gilly at the time and mentioned it to him. <laughs> <laughs> How do you go being, we're sitting in a hotel now, and we don't know how he goes with Brad Hodge a few weeks ago and we were doing that in Florida and he said, oh, sometimes it's like the hotel's the jail and they just let you out to play cricket. How do you go with that lifestyle? And I've just been speaking to my kids on FaceTime this morning. It's a lot more accessible now, but what's it like when you're on the other side of the world and you might not be making runs and hmm. they're all that way away and they want Dad to come home? Yeah, that's definitely... I mean, that's one of the hardest parts of it, but... It's kind of that's what you sign up for as well, and yep. that's why I think at some point you've got to have support of a good, strong support network around you. And, you know, I was, there's no way I would have been able to play as long as what I have if I didn't have that support network. And and I think just that, that realization as well that oh, I grabbed it later in my career, but if you get runs or you don't, it doesn't matter you're a good person or a bad person. Mm. It's like live your life, try your best out on the field, um, commit to your team that you're playing for at that point in time, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, and conversely, if it does work, it doesn't make you a, a better person. So just go and live your life and try and live some experiences and hopefully your cricket will work out. And did you have that approach in, early in your career? Because like when, when you say you can be hot and you're on the front page, McCullum's a star, mm. we love McCullum, and then if you're on a, uh, you know, the way the media works, if you're not on a good stretch, especially if you've been built up, it's like, well, he's mm. no good. He yeah. be playing. No, and I definitely didn't have that early. And that was, when I, when I took on the captaincy, that was one of the things I tried to I guess drill into our guys is that um, you know in this game hopefully you're going to come in at the age of 20 you're going to leave at 35 now your formative years you're going to make a lot of mistakes during that time if you're going to be playing international career you're going to be doing it in, in the public eye um, so you just got to be sensible you got to uh, as a captain you've got to encourage them to grow and prosper mm. but also accept that they will make some mistakes along the road and personally I, I definitely made a lot of mistakes when I was younger um, but that was probably one of the proudest things is when the person I was at the end of my career was a far more developed and mature person um, who'd lived a life and, and who'd come out the other side and still played the game um, for the very reasons he got into it at the, at the start. So that was the thing I was probably most proud of and, and I think that's probably a misconception of a lot of cricketers now, um, you know, that, that they don't... Uh, well, you know, they that they they are the finished product when they come in. They're not... They develop and they grow into it. Look at Davey Warner. Mm. I think the person Davey Warner was when he rocked into international cricket. Three years ago. To the person he is now, he's a lot more sensible, he's a lot more mature, and he's you know, he's developing as a person and as a cricketer. We've just been watching him here in the first day of the Sydney Test, smacking them around everywhere. Well, we'll get to the captaincy in a minute. Obviously, there's a bit more water to go on a bridge before that, but when did you first get picked to play a Test match for New Zealand? Did you, did you get a phone call, or how's that all play out? Uh, I can't remember the exact details of it but I remember the test match it was a crater test match do you remember that in yeah. Hamilton where the pitch sort of just I do. exploded out on one side um, so we're playing against South Africa welcome to test cricket yeah and I was keeping and Dam's bowling over the wicket to the right handers at the crater so I ended up just standing down the league side just trying to because otherwise it was going to be buys after buys yeah. and then the second innings um, it was actually dangerous for left handers to bat so they we had Stephen Fleming and Mark Richardson top of the order and uh, no, Mackay and Tini coming around the wicket targeting that 
it was just dangerous. So they ended up sliding down the order, and I managed to get to open the batting in the second innings. So that was pretty cool. I enjoyed that. I didn't get many runs. I got 17 not out or something, but yeah, it was a good experience, and it was nice, nice to to represent New Zealand in Test cricket because that Test cricket for me has always been the most important. The other stuff's cool. Yep. It's good fun, but Test cricket is where it's at. So when did you start to feel comfortable in Test cricket? How many Test matches in did you start to not think, am I going to get picked again this week or not? It's kind of different because if you look at my career, I almost had sort of three different careers um, as, as a Test cricketer. I played 50-odd Tests as a wicketkeeper batsman, yep. batting at sort of number seven or number eight. Mm. Um, and then when my knees gave out, I had to make a decision, either try and play another year or so um, and and then potentially have, have no more left, uh, no more test cricket left in me or change tack and give up the gloves. And I got a lot of criticism at the time for it, but it was really the only way. If I wanted to continue to play test cricket and have an impact, I had to. And it was gutsy because I, I my batting didn't demand a position. Um, but then I went to open the batting for a period of time and had a little bit of success at that. And then eventually the third part was obviously the captaincy and batting in that number five position. Um, yeah, but it was pretty. It was pretty. Uh, yeah, it was. It was a pretty cool time though to be able to change kind yeah. of careers throughout your, throughout and not miss a test match throughout that time as well. So, at what point did you develop? such a freedom to your batting was it free in your mind as it looks when you're out in the middle when it might be the first ball of a t20 a 50 over game or a test match and you take three steps down the wicket and try and hit x bowler over mid wicket for six oh, i think I, I, I sometimes i actually try not to do that but it just kind of happens you do it every time though <laughs> every time well that's now. what I, yeah i guess my, my mantra is uh, if in doubt take the aggressive option right. so if the if you have that that moment in your mind where you don't know what's going on or you don't know which way to go then it's better to step forward than than to retreat, and it's got me in trouble a lot. Yep. Um, but at least then, when you walk off and you put your bat down and you sit there and you go, okay, well at least I made I made the play and it didn't work, um, rather than sort of feeling like you've been dictated to, which is early on in my in my career I felt I was nowhere near good enough, so I was always reacting to what was going on. So I sort of wanted to become a proactive creator rather than a reactive one. Um, but I think the captaincy definitely freed me up as well because my message that I was preaching is to play with freedom. Don't play with any inhibitions about failure or um, you know what people will say or think. Um, so if you're going to preach that, you've got to live it as well. Um, and that was kind of, I guess, that took, took my game to a new level as well um, in terms of that freedom. Next week on the Howie Games, we continue our Big Bash special. So it will either be, depending on schedules, Kevin Peterson, wow, or Kumar Sangakara, equally well. Either way, happy days. Back to Brendan. You, you talk about, Captain, you're very low-key. You're very, I noticed you're on the Big Bash. You just say, oh, you know, when we're talking to you on the mic, when I ask you specific things what are happening, and you just say, oh, it's just for the game. And it's like you don't... You seem to analyse the game tremendously, but when you talk about it, it's just like, oh, well, that was just a bit of luck or a bit of fortune. It's like you always talk down your approach to the game in some ways. That's probably a Kiwi mentality as well. I think you know you don't want to yeah, you don't want to stand there and trumpet yourself either. It's kind of yep. um, you know I think as well like there's that many scars in the game. You're going to make decisions that are not going to come off. Mm. So you can't when they do come off, you can't stand stand up there and beat your chest and say how great you are. So is there any part of you? I love American sport. And I love that they do that. I love when a bloke scores a touchdown and he runs around and says it was about me. Is there any part of Brendan McCullum that wants to walk off after you've made 100 off 54 balls and say you know? I was pretty awesome today, or is that just not you at all? Nah, that's not me at all. I think it was me when I was younger. Right. Um, but probably a bit of a byproduct of the environment you're in as well. I think now, like, 
I thought okay, what our team wanted to do is we want we wanted to be a representation of New Zealanders and yep. I know we cop a fair bit of grief over here for mm. for our way that we're kind of we're unassuming and low key and that but that's that is what New Zealanders are like. So um I thought in the end we became a representation of, of our country because we exhibited those behaviours and and that was um I was one of those guys that was that was um trying to push that message. So, you know, I look at Kane Williamson now. So he gets a hundred. It doesn't matter the situation. The guy is so unassuming. He is. But that's just what I think. That's why he's so good, and that's why he's in, like the pub. Oh, why people are endeared to him, and I think he's going to be a really good leader as well. well. We'll get to that. Let's talk about the captaincy then, because it was. Explain to me what happened, because it was a tremendously decisive time in New Zealand cricket. I think it was. Was and it divisive Martin? As well. Yeah, and divisive, decisive, yeah. and divisive. Mm. Martin, I think it was at Martin Crow that said he was going to burn his blazer, and you know, it was pretty heated stuff. So Ross Taylor mm. was captain. So Ross was captain. So uh, yeah, you probably got to take it back a step as well. Let's um, go. So when Dan Vittori stepped down as captain, um, well, actually before that. So when Dan Vittori was captain, I was vice captain, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, they came to me. The selectors came to me at the time, and they said, "Look, we don't believe in that, that we need a vice captain, name vice captain." And I, actually, and I agreed with that. I actually don't think you do. Um, if you have an experienced captain who understands a, a culture and environment, then then he encourages a whole lot of guys to lead. Um, so you don't you don't need a named vice captain. You need to know if someone goes, if the captain goes off the field, who's going mm. to take over. But you don't need that name. So so I agreed with it. Um, and then it was only about three and a half weeks later they then named Ross Taylor as vice captain. Um, again, it hurt to at that point in time. And I'd always Ross and I played age group cricket together and I was always captain and he was vice captain and we had a really good working relationship and even then it was fine um, and then fast forward a bit uh, and then Dan announces he's going to step down as captain um, and then they they asked myself and Ross to push our cases in like a presidential style election to, uh, to present powerpoints for the captaincy which was just utter that oh, was ridiculous, to be honest. And what in a boardroom or in a in a meeting room? Yeah, like PowerPoint presentations and all that. It was just a crock shit. It was right. It was terrible. Um, so did you do that? I did, and that was if I made a mistake anywhere along the road, it was actually doing that like that. It's ridiculous. I mean, you should never. If if someone wants you captain, then they want you captain. If they don't, well, so be it. Doesn't matter what you do. It's not your right that you yeah. should be captain or like no one deserves the captaincy. You either. You're either captaincy material, and someone wants you in that time, or, or you're not. Um, and and I think what that that did is it sort of drove a wedge between those who support Ross and him, and those who support me and and myself within and it, the team, within the team, and also outside of the team as well. Those okay. support networks that you, that are so important. And he was made captain. He was then made captain. Yeah. And yeah. how did that strike you? Uh, it was difficult at the time. Um, you wanted to be captain. Yeah, I did want to be captain, only because I felt that I, at the time I felt I had something to offer. In hindsight, I wasn't ready for the captaincy either. So in a strange way, it was probably mm. it's kind of the best thing that could have happened, but it didn't feel like that at that point in time. Um, and look, I don't, Ross wasn't ready either, and I, I've released my book recently, and I, I make no, um, I, I mentioned that in my book, that I don't believe he was ready. I, I wasn't ready, and I was three or four years older than him. The book's declared? Declared, declared. Yeah. You can buy it in all good booksellers right now. Oh, I don't know if it's over here actually, but it'd be on iBooks, wouldn't it? Yeah, if you need a good sleep, then feel free to buy it. But <laughs> I mean, that's what I need to get me around the country on these flights. Yeah. But yeah, and it just made it um, it made it really difficult. Um, 
long story short, new uh, new coach then comes in, um, who I'd worked with previously. You had to be an idiot to work out that those two weren't getting on. Yeah. Um, our results were s- struggling a little bit as well, albeit a couple of fleeting moments. Um, and in the end, the new coach, Mike Esson, decided that he wanted to make a change. And so he he axed Ross as captain. Um, and then he installed me as captain. Did he tell you that was going to happen beforehand or not? No. But I, I mean... Yeah. You've got to be an idiot not to work out when the coach and the captain aren't happy with one another. But that was one of the hot points is people weren't sure what, what. A lot of people thought that I'd run a coup to be able to get myself in as captain. To be honest, I didn't give I didn't give two shits about it. It was kind of by that stage I'd come I'd come to the decision in my head that it was never actually going to eventuate. Right. Um and for a bit there, when they asked me if I wanted to be captain, um, I turned to my wife and I said what do you think? And I CEO, I said, I'll have to get back to you. So wife and I sat down, we discussed so you, it. They, they rang you and said, we want you to be captain. You said, I'm not sure. I said, can I get back to you? Right. Yeah. Um, they initially offered me the one day and T20 captaincy because they had offered Ross the test captaincy. Whether that was meant to happen or not, I don't really know. Um, but they offered me that and then they rang me back after and they said, Ross has turned down the test captaincy. What about the test captaincy? And so I sort of said to my wife, it's so, what do we do? And she's kind of like, well, um, you either, you, well, you've really only got two options. You either take it on because you think you're the best equipped or you retire because the new captain, if it's not you, um, doesn't need too divisive or two no. people who are disgruntled or um, difficult within the environment. So, What's your wife's name? Alyssa. Clever lady. Yeah, she's not bad. For an Aussie, oh, come on. <laughs> no, no, she's yeah, she's great, and that's again those those sort of key moments where if you don't have strong support networks, mm. you make irrational decisions, and and I mean I I don't know what was going to happen either straight after that, but I decided I'd take the captaincy. Stephen Fleming, good mate of mine, said don't take it. Um, he said don't need it. Go off, go and play your T Twenty around the world. Just forget all about it. It wasn't meant to be. It would have been easy to do, paying a lot of money, less responsibility, less stress. Oh, make four or five times more money you make yep. playing for New Zealand. Um, but there, just, there was that that little bit in me that kind of said, you know what, I, I actually think I can give these guys a bit of freedom. But that's when, when I... So when I decided to take it over, there was only one way to play, and that was the way that I thought the game should have been played all through my upbringing. And, and so uh, even if that... If it didn't work, well, at least we sort of, you know, had a crack at it. So how 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 divided was the team at this point? Was it was it blokes sitting on one side of the change room and other blokes, or was it just actually a wasn't the undercurrent? team? The team wasn't divided right. as such. Um, I think prior to that, the, the team weren't overly happy. I, I actually think I felt at the time that there was like Ross. This is Ross. This was almost would be great time for Ross to be captain now, um, and then it would have given Kane another couple of years to develop. But Kane will make the best of it because he's a he's a champion but mm. so I think what should have happened was uh, probably if I had made, been made captain back then then Ross taken over straight after me for a few years and then on to Kane um, but it didn't happen but I mean the, the team themselves were fine like young guys they don't really care what's going they just want to try and prove themselves make and stay in the team yeah more experienced guys they just want to try and play for a common cause um, and you'd say playing for your country should be that common cause, but there's different environments. Some and everyone will tell you that there's times where you love playing for a certain group mm. of guys, and there's a team, there's times where the, where you don't. So, so you, you take over, mate, against South Africa. Yeah. And you have it. You're right. You're back 
No, no, I'm good. Trouble. Yeah, right? I'm sweet. Uh, was it the first uh, test you took over and lifted a bat and got knocked over for 45? If in doubt, take the aggressive option. Right. Had a look at the wicket and sort of thought, yeah, okay, it's a little bit green, but it's hard. Looks, there's no clouds around, so if we can get through that first session, then we should be okay. Same Ross didn't tour, so um, I was meant to bat four. I was going to um, come up from five to four, and then with him not touring, uh, uh, so then. Uh, Peter Fulton was then going to open. He got injured, so then I moved up from uh, from number four to open the batting. So I thought, if in doubt, take the aggressive option. So I won the toss, batted, and then if we had got through that first session, we might have been all right. But we got bowled out right. <laughs> in about an hour and twenty minutes. Did you get out having a crack or not? No, I didn't actually. I got out sort of playing across the line to one off um, Philander. So there's talk of a, a meeting between you and the, the the officials and the coaches where you've laid out the way you wanted to play cricket, which. Is, was just reading about it and you talked about the Colin Cowdery lecture and the way you spoke there um, about what you wanted in cricket and the way you wanted to play cricket and the way you wanted to lead cricket. To, uh, reading it, it was like, wow, how good would it be to play for that team? Why isn't every sporting team like that? Explain to us w- what your general ethos was, Baz. Yeah, so straight after, um, coach and assistant coach and manager came into my room, just came in, grabbed a beer out of the fridge and sat around and said, right, that's kind of out of the way with. Right. So now we're too, and it was it was almost the the best thing that could happen because we hit rock bottom, and then no longer could anyone say, well, "I want to do it this way," or "We used to do it that way." It was we actually had to face up to the fact that we were rubbish, um, and we needed uh, we needed an overhaul, um, an identity change, and I think a lot of teams go through that, but ours was actually staring us in the face anyway. It was just try and be a representation of New Zealanders. And that was what we wanted to do. We wanted to be humble, wanted to be hardworking, um, wanted to be innovative like our country is. Mm. Um, and we also wanted to be a group of guys who had a bloody good time while they are on the road as well and try and take on the bigger boys around the world and, and do so with a smile on our face. And and that was what we set about trying to do, um, not judge people based on their results but just try and make them feel comfortable with an environment and try and make them feel like they're a part of something special during the short time that they have of playing international cricket. And we we had a no dickheads policy. Um, so we had to we lost a couple along the way, not just players, but management staff as well, who just didn't understand it. Yeah. Didn't understand what we were trying to achieve and and um, and yeah, and then I think we, we got there towards the end of, of that uh, of that, that period. There was talk that you guys wouldn't be interested in sledging and you were playing the game it was reported I don't know inside it was reported that you guys were playing the game on a like almost a, a higher level a higher plane of an approach to sport is that is that getting carried away or not um I think the sledging thing that was organic like that and uh, we suffered a bit of criticism when we came over here you did um that it was that it was forced and it was yep. it was all bluff. There. That's what the Aussie boys said. It was a load of rubbish and yeah. And if you're a nice guy, then you don't have to say. Mitchie said, you know, if you're nice guys, don't don't say the nice guys. Yeah. Um, and I completely get that. But the thing was, it was actually it was authentic. And for us, it couldn't be any other way. Like if it's not authentic, then it's never going to have long term sustainability. And I think that was where, for a long time, we tried to play like Australians um, because we sort of felt, you know, like that that style of cricket was successful. That gnarly kind of confrontational in your face and it was successful and for periods it kind of was for us um, but it didn't have long term sustainability because it wasn't authentic to us and that's where I felt and the group of us felt that just trying to play like Kiwis um, like Kiwis are would give us our greatest chance and I think it kind of worked 
oh, I've got no doubt it worked. A, a, a follow-on from that, um, you were over in the Emirates playing Pakistan when you know the cricket world was devastated by what happened to Philip Hughes. You guys were in the middle of a test match mm. at that period of time. So, so what happened? How do you find that out as a cricketer speaking to some of the Aussie guys? You know, it's, it's so prevalent in their life today. What was it like for, for you guys? Yeah, I mean, that was, again, probably the, the sledging thing. Um, like we, so we were playing Pakistan. It was the uh, end of day one um, at Sharjah. And obviously Pakistan's incredibly difficult difficult team to play in the United Arab mm. Emirates. And um, they were 280 for three or something. And then news came through that Phil was had been hit, um, was in a coma. Um, and it kind of shocked the dressing room straight away. And not because everyone was great mates with Phil. And I think, again, like some people would judge us because of our reaction to it. And saying, well, we hardly even knew Phil. And it's, it's not about that. Some guys knew him. Some guys knew him quite well. Some guys didn't know him at all. Mm. But didn't it, that didn't matter. It was kind of the, like cricket. It's not life or death. You know, it's sort of it is a game. And but I guess that moment sort of it was, and it could have been. I mean, it was for Phil, but it could have been any one of our guys as well. And that's and that was kind of and that's not insensitive at all. It's it's just that the realization that cricket had now changed from being just a game to actually someone could die playing it. Um, it really hit home to our group and. And um, and I remember uh, straight away, like looking around the group, they were just devastated. Um, and so we we pushed pretty hard with the ICC to have the test match called off. Um, we were the only game going on at the time um, around the world in international cricket. Mm. Um, and I just looked around the dressing room. I didn't think we had a group of guys who were f- mentally fit enough to be able to play or to carry on with the game. But such is life, the game sort of has to go on. And in a strange way, it was probably the best thing that could have happened for cricket as well. Um, we turned up, we decided that well, the next day was called off. Um, it gave us all a bit more time to just sort of come to grips with everything when it was announced that Phil had passed away. Um, and then when we turned up, uh, we sort of... I didn't know what to do, to be honest. And like Everyone's sort of looking at you as if you know what's going on. You didn't know what to do as a captain? Yeah, and as a leader, you, you kind of they trust that you know which way you're going and, and you've got their best interests at heart. Well, to be honest, I had no idea what what was the right thing to do at that point in time. Um, but I knew one thing is that I couldn't stop the game from going ahead. Um, so we, in the end, we sort of decided, and I got some help from outside us, as, uh, outside our group as well, just decided that didn't look, if we're going to play the game, then we just need to stick together and look after one another. And um, and just not judge any results. What would happen? Like, it didn't matter. The game actually didn't matter from that point on. And in some bizarre kind of way, it actually we we put in our probably our best ever performance away from home. Um, we hit twenty something sixes. We played with no fear whatsoever. We bowled them out twice. Um, we didn't bowl. We bowled two bounces in the entire day, and they were accidental. And weren't meant to happen. So was it? Let's not bowl bounces, or the bowlers just didn't. No, we said no bounces. Right. So this is ridiculous. We don't want to be here. Mm. Um, just let's not bowl bounces. Let's have no fielders fielding in close. Um, and it's not a you're not trying to protest. It was just that it didn't feel right. Yeah. Like the Pakistani guys are doing exactly the same as what we're trying to do. You know, we're, it's a game for them. It's a game for us. Um, and so, yeah. But in a strange way, it freed us up as a team, and um, and we almost took the that. 
test match we took that mindset into the rest of the time that we had together and it was pretty phenomenal to see a group of guys we've got 600 and something playing in charge against yeah. Pakistan like it just doesn't happen you and Kane made a lot of runs yeah but again it didn't even matter right like, so it's gone the full circle to you playing in the backyard or in, in the streets of Dunedin with your mates in a way isn't it it's just playing cricket for fun yep just playing for fun and just wow. playing because you want to look after your teammates and yeah it was pretty amazing amazing time and yeah, it's actually Dan Vittori was there. We brought him out of retirement for that test match, and, and in a strange way, things happen for a reason. But uh, there's no way from from my point of view as captain um, or as leader, I would have been able to get through that time and be able to help lead that team without guys like Dan, experienced guys around. And so, in a strange way, you know, it was uh, that was that was a good thing that, that happened as well that he was there with us. A short pause for a moment here. Brendan is about to talk about a court case he was involved in in London in 2015. Brendan's former teammate, Chris Cairns, faced charges of perjury. After nine weeks and evidence from more than 30 witnesses, including Brendan, Chris Cairns was acquitted of all charges. There's plenty of detail online if you wish to educate yourself further on the case, and Brendan writes about it in his brilliant book, which you really should read, called Declared. But again, I stress, Cairns was acquitted of all charges. Obviously, um, a major part written about your career is what happened with Chris Cairns, and I'm not actually sure, mate, what we're allowed to talk about or if we're not allowed to talk about stuff. So maybe best that you steer me through that than the other way around. I mean, it's hard because there's obviously... Yeah, what I've said in my book is very carefully chosen words as well. I understand that, yeah. Um, but look, it's, it was a nice time, um, but things move on as well. And, and I, had, I had a duty not... I didn't have to do it. Um, I think that's an important point. I didn't have to turn up at that court in London. But to give evidence? No, nah, but I felt that I... So why did you? I, I felt I had a moral obligation, not just for the game or for international career, but for my family, for my kids. Um that if you believe in something um, that you've you've got to have you've got to be able to stand up and no matter how tough it is and how much you don't want to do it you've got to be able to stand up and and actually um, you know stand up for what you believe in so it wasn't much fun but I, yeah it's, it's not what some people will look at it and say why would he do it so, to be honest I, that doesn't bother me um, I felt that it was the right thing to do and uh, it was never about me versus Chris. Mm. Um, I think some people don't understand that either. Um, and it was never guilty or not guilty was was going to determine whether what I did was right or wrong. Um, and in, in a strange way, I'm actually really pleased he's not in a cell in England because you know he's he's still a guy I played with for a long time. What amazed me is your testimony, which I read as being in a closed situation came out the front page of the paper. Yeah, I was pretty disappointed with that. Like, if she sort of, was it a closed situation? Uh, well, it's meant to be. Right, <laughs> right. And I, I mentioned that in the cadre lecture that I mm. think, you know, from... And the reason I mentioned it in the cadre lecture is not to complain about something, but it's actually to... Like, this is something which can be corrected. And I think, you know, like, my testimony was leaked. Who it, whoever it was leaked by, I don't know. Mm. Um, but... In the end, it, word for word, what I'd said had made it into the public arena. Now, I mean that's that's pretty amateur from a from a governing struck me reading it governing body. Yeah. Um, and you know, if we look, if we move forward and we sort of think, you know, if guys have information now, are they going to still be willing to come forward when they know that it it could put them in a situation where they're exposed as I was in England? Um, 
I still believe they should, <laughs> um, but there needs to be some tighter parameters. Yeah. Which I, which to the ICC's credit, I think they have definitely tightened up in the in the last little while. Um, Sir Ronnie Flanagan, I have an immense amount of respect for that man, and I think now that he's you know firmly in charge there um, of the anti-corruption unit, um, I think we will start to see some significant gains in that area around protection of information. Um, but yeah, I think. You know, corruption's always going to be around in this game, just like it is in every other sport, yeah. through the Olympics and through business, through everywhere. But it's a matter of making sure that we try and clear it out as much as possible and those who do have information feel protected and safe to be able to bring it forward because ultimately those guys are going to lead to cleaning the game up more than what it would not, uh, otherwise. So how did it affect you, mate? Did it affect your cricket? Did it affect your life? Let's let's move on from what, what happened with Chris. I'm talking about did it affect it, that everywhere around the world, especially in New Zealand, obviously a massive story, and you're on the front page time and time and time again. Um, yeah, look, uh, I was just a bit disappointed that the, the timing of everything was kind of around the Australian tour. And I love, to me, coming to Australia and yep. taking on the Aussies is... Is kind of you know a pretty cool part of your career. Um, so the time of it wasn't ideal, but yeah, it is what it is. And um, yeah, as I said, I wouldn't change what changed the fact that I, I stood up for what I believed in. Um, but yeah, it came to Aussie, and I played pretty averagely as well. I was underprepared, but the thing was, I I didn't do any training during that time because um, it wasn't a it wasn't a good fun time to be. Uh, and I play cricket because it's fun, so I didn't want to turn up to the nets with that kind of mental baggage mm. over me as well and then start training because then I'd start to resent the game. So hence I downed tools and just focused on that. And then when I came here, I picked them up again and tried to just uh, have a bit of fun. And that didn't work out, but you know, at least I still, still love cricket at the end of it. Back to Baz in a minute. Last week's episode featured former Australian captain Ricky Ponting. And this was the Ricky Ponting without the helmet on, not the former Australian captain, but the real Ricky Ponting. As you know, with the chemo wards, they're all open glass areas, yeah. you know, sterile environments. No one can come in, no one can go out sort of thing. But I got up close to the glass and he sort of looked over and saw me in the window and he sort of sat up in bed and his face sort of lit up and he wanted to, because he couldn't come out and I couldn't come in, he wanted to get over as close as he could to the window and he, he sat up in bed and then put his feet on the ground and basically as soon as his feet hit the ground he just vomited all over the place because of the pain that he was he was going through. He just threw up everywhere and, you know, the nurses came in rushing in and put laying back down, clean him up and put him back down to bed again and, you know, so it was... Rana and I walked out at the end and we got out the front and we kept it together inside but we got out the front and both of us just started bawling our eyes out, you know, what, what we'd just seen. And, and then that was the line in the sand. It was right from... From now on, we're going to we're doing whatever we can to help these people. That was Punter. Now back to Brendan. Your final test match. Um, what happened first, the World Cup or your final test match? No, World Cup. Okay, well, let's stuff the final test match and let's talk about the World Cup. I reckon um, it, <laughs> growing up, you're like, oh, you always want to see the opposition best player get out. It was like when Vivid get out, it was fantastic. And when you'd get out, it was fantastic. But as you get older, you start to love the sport and you want to see the good guys do well. And I reckon um, Australia fell in love with you during the World Cup because you were just fearless, mate. And you just had a crack and you were charging down the wicket and you were attacking and you're doing everything that we're seeing in the Big Bash now. It was a very, very special time, that World Cup. Um, I reckon even as an Australian, if you'd won the World Cup, I would have been equally as stoked. And I find bizarre to say that. <laughs> I really do, mate. Yeah. It was a it was a magical time that World Cup, wasn't it? It was. Uh, literally, it was. So we we've said it before. We've said it since, and there was a documentary made on it. It was 
honestly the greatest time of our lives. <laughs> like, fantastic. Like, yeah, it was. And we we identified identified pretty early on as well that um, we may have a pretty amazing moment on our doorstep and. And to be able to play a World Cup in your own country, obviously Australia and New Zealand shared the World Cup hosting, and to be able to play one in your own conditions and in your own country um, was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Mm. Um, how are we going to be able to maximise our opportunities in it? Well, one was that we needed to get the public, like be a part of the public, actually embrace the fact that, that if we start succeeding, they're going to really get in behind what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so we... So we kind of, all our training had for the previous 12 to 18 months had been geared towards the World Cup. So when we arrived at the World Cup, we almost didn't train because we'd, we'd, we'd peaked or we'd tapered off already. So then it was just a matter of go and embrace the public, go and play some golf, go and have a beer at, the, at your local bar, go and walk through the airport, take a photo with those kids and just absolutely enjoy yourself. And when we play cricket, we're going to have a crack. Mm. And because we know these conditions, like if they're coming to our hometown, you know, like yeah. we know how to play in these conditions. We we know that, um, you know, like the the trip from the airport to the ground or from the hotel to the ground, or we we know all of those the familiar surroundings. So we should just go out there and just have some fun. And geez, we had some fun. We had a, I played twenty one rounds of golf during the World Cup. Did you? <laughs> it was like Did you? Had, I think we had two trainings. Right. Um, it's had a great time. Um, <laughs> but we didn't win the World Cup, but geez, like we gave as good as we got everywhere we went. Um, you know, we we lost one game, which was World Cup final, semi final. Let's talk about the semi final. You need twelve off the last over against South Africa. That's oh, the best game of fifty over cricket I've ever seen. By the length of the straight, because you know they often don't stick in your mind, but that one still sticks in my mind. Um, how are you dealing with the fact that you were uh, you were done with the bat? Where are you watching the game? Downstairs in the um, in the change room. I always well, in the normally, change room. Yeah, there's always a TV in the change room. Right, um, international cricket. So I always just watch in there, and um, and that everyone sort of knows that that's where I'll be as well. And and I quite like it too because I think by yourself. Uh, well, normally there's a few guys, and it's normally the guys who are next into bat will right. come down. And it's a good opportunity to try and give them a bit of confidence um, away from you know the, the cameras and that. But it's also it stops that that reactionary decision sometimes that you, right you go in and bat. It kind of just it creates a bit more of a calmer sense, and and also the, there's nothing I can do by sitting in the dugout cheering people on. Okay. Um, you, you can do it from down deep down in the dungeons of of Eden Park. But I was pretty nervous, I must say. Um, but at the same time, like Grant Elliott, like, that was a great story in itself. Here's a guy who no one could understand why he was picked in the World Cup team. And no was, one. And he was South African. Yeah. He is. He's, he talks like South African, but he's as Kiwi as they come. Mm. Um, but no one could understand why Why would we pick Grant Elliott. His stats weren't sublime. He just it didn't make any sense. But and that one thing you can't. Like, from a selection point of view, you can't um, select on character. Well, you can't not select on character, and this guy's got so much character. And yeah. if you take out his subcontinent performances and just look at what he's done in Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa and England, he's a standout performer. And for us, he was experienced. And if the game was on the line in a World Cup semi-final, who do you want there? You want an experienced guy who who's going to play for the team, and that's what Grant Elliott did. So it was 12, 12 off the last over. I can't remember. I know Dan it was. sort of nicked or he, like, he late cut a four or something and then it was at 12. So are you down uh, – was there a couple other guys down there with you? I think I read again that there might have been a couple of 
Oh. Cleaners or support staff? Yeah, or no, there's a couple of uh, caterers down there, Indian caterers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True story. Yeah, it's just dead true. Yeah. Yeah, they, um... So you're down there with the caterers? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then when that final one, uh, final ball got hit for uh, got hit for six, they've just run and just like jumped on top of me. <laughs> it's, yeah, it was, yeah, it was good fun. It was, uh, it was pretty amazing. I thought it was the most amazing game of cricket to be a part of as well. And AB as well, those South African boys, geez, I've got a lot of respect for them too. Like we said at the toss, AB and I, that whoever wins today, like the opposition will go into the dressing room and, and have a beer afterwards and just wish them best luck in the final. And to a man, they, you know, half an hour after, to a man, every single one of their their, uh, their team and support staff yeah. came into our dressing room. You could see they were hurting as well. Um, but no, nah, a lot of respect for him and a lot of respect for the South African boys. And to top the moment off for the TV audience, Ian Smith was in contrary, um, doing his best not to be biased. But how can you not be? Your team's looking to, your country's looking to make their first ever World Cup final. He was going bananas when he hit, hit it over for six. He's a great commentator. Yeah, he? he's Incredible. brilliant. Yeah, no, he's. I thought his call there was was world class as well. Um, just that feeling at the ground as well, just just erupted, and it, it erupted when we played the Aussies there um, in that low scoring round robin game. Yeah. But this went to a whole new level. It was just phenomenal. To actually, you'd almost feel just a sigh of relief as well. And again, we didn't win the World Cup, but it was just a major stepping stone of, well, not stepping stone, but we'd overcome a hurdle of of making a World Cup final. And you'd probably say we played our World Cup final that mm. night in hindsight, um, but it didn't matter. Like that's, yeah, it was, it was just an amazing experience, and it was pretty cool to do it with those bunch of guys. They were, they were lifelong friends. Um, that group, that's for sure. So from everything you've told me about it, it's about the team and having fun and you go to the World Cup final MCG, Australia versus New Zealand and it's, you know, Stark versus McCullum and he gets you, he knocks you over really, really early. When you're walking off the MCG at that stage, is it all team or are you like, shit, or like, what's in your mind? Uh, well, amazing because I was so relaxed. I was incredibly relaxed for that game. Like, um, I've been relaxed all through the World Cup, um, but I was super relaxed for the final. Uh, everything. Like we, we go back to that backyard. Mm. In the backyard, it was we're playing Australia. Me and my brother we're playing Australia in a World Cup final. I was opening the batting, captain of the New Zealand World Cup final, MCG full house. You know, they were, you can hear as the fastest bowlers running into bowl, you can just hear the crowd erupting. Everything that which, which was happening that moment, I'd already lived, if you know what I mean. I sort of, yeah. I, it was kind of why I got into the game. Um, and I actually laughed when I got out and I went into the dressing room and I sat down. I kind of just laughed because I forgot, like, I was so up for that game. I was so determined to, to lead my country to success in World Cup. I actually forgot the most basic element of cricket. <laughs> and that's what I love about this game. I forgot to watch the ball. And Mitchell Stark, look, he, he was outstanding. Um, he bowled fast, he swung the ball, mm. and, and he deserved to knock me over that day. Um, but yeah, I, I had, had a laugh to myself, and I thought, geez, this is a game that just keeps giving you great lessons, that no matter how big the occasion, no matter how big the prize, you still got to stick to some basics as well. And that was that was that you got to watch the ball. What a way to finish your test career as you passed Gilly was the most sixes ever in Test cricket. You went out. The Aussies gave you a, a um, what's it called? A, a guard of honour. Guard of honour. Yeah, that was. That's humble. pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. 
I mean, she's us from South Eden, you know. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> she's huge, huge ambitions, and when you start playing cricket, but uh, I mean, you get a, yeah, you get in the guard of honour by by the Australians playing in front of a packed house. Everyone was standing up to welcome you to the crease, and yeah, it was a pretty humbling kind of moment. And I look back on that; I'll never forget it. And it was pretty cool. Did you know what the record was? 50, yeah. 56 balls. Oh no, no, I didn't know that. I always, I don't know anything about stats or records except sixes. That's right. the only record I ever. <laughs> right. So you knew you passed Gill for most sixes. Yeah. yeah, I did. But that's um, that's sort of a bit of an inside joke with the boys as well. They, they kind of laugh. It's like they knew exactly. There's two things. One is that I'll talk to you all day long about my test wicket. <laughs> I'll, I'll downplay everything else, but I'll talk up my test wicket. And and I'll talk to you about how many sixes I've hit. That's it. And this, <laughs> that's uh, but that's well, the test wicket was it? Is it Sarfraze? Sarfraze. He's on a hundred plus. Yeah, he's smoking him. Yeah, caught him bold too. And I had Eunice Khan dropped on ninety nine. Did you? Yeah. Real sort of sharp, medium, going both ways. Uh, maybe not sharp. Um, <laughs> I was trying to be nice, Brendan. Kind of floaty, kind of <laughs> right. mediums. Yeah, yeah. No, they're they're not pretty. Um, but I do have a test wicket. There's one more than my brother. Oh, <laughs> hello to your brother out there. No doubt we'll be listening. Mate, the, the fastest ever 100, I think it was 54 balls. Um, it's What a way to finish. Down the wicket. He goes over the top. Could it be it? It is. It's a record for Brandon McCullum. What a magnificent 100 here in Christchurch. Did you did like? Do you find out that it's a record? Do you know when you're in the eighties? Does it, something come up on the big screen? Nah, Nothing. No. Nah. Oh, to be fair, I was trying to hit every ball for four or six. Yeah, you were. Looking I we turned up and we that series. I, I thought we should have won in Adelaide, um, yeah. and then that would have been one all in that series. We didn't win. We got beat. So be it. Um, we were close in Wellington, uh, and then obviously a no ball, and then Adam Vogue just goes on bats brilliantly, and we come up short. I felt like we could win this test match. It was a green wicket. Um, we lost the toss again. Uh, and I was sort of thinking I had... There was a massive tent there as well. New Zealand cricket were real kind and, and put sort of 50 of my closest friends and, and family and um, and guys I'd play with in, in a tent for the game just to sort of... As a, as a sign of... I guess, uh, as, as a thanks. And they were there. I could sort of see them as I walked out to bat. But before I batted, I said to BJ Watling, I was downstairs and... The ball was seaming everywhere. It was like a green seam. It was mm. Hazel was bowling brilliantly, and you know a couple of the other guys. And Kane Williamson, who I think, you know, along with Steve Smith and Virat Kohli's probably the best player in the world, um, and probably has the best defensive technique. And he's getting hit on the inside thigh guard and in the box, and it's seaming back everywhere. He's on seven off about seventy odd balls. And I turned to B James, so mate, if Kane can't defend out there, then how the hell am I going to do it? Mate? <laughs> I said, and plus. I'm not going to be able to live with myself if I get out in my final test match trying to defend a ball. So it's just not the right way to play. I've, I've preached all the way along. Yeah. You've got to be authentic to your style. So I said, I'm, I'm going to bat outside leg stump because they seem to be looking to try and hit top of off stump. And if they try and hit that, I'm going to try and cut them. And if they then pitch up, I'm just going to try and whack them over the top. And I said, whack them over the and top. we'll just see what happens. <laughs> and um, and honestly, that was as simple as it was. I didn't believe I had a strong enough defensive game to be able to handle batting on that wicket. So went in doubt, attack, and just try and, and I tried to stick to my strengths. And yeah, I got so much luck as well. Second ball, you know, I tried to mow one over cow corner, and I've got a top edge which flew over slips. And I got a lot of luck along the way, but I think sometimes you earn your your luck as well. And 
and in the end, I think the Aussies sort of started going away from hitting that top of off stump length, and that sort of created some scoring opportunities. But no, I didn't know I was anywhere near the record. I was just trying to get as many as I could before they got me on, on a wicket like that. But to beat, I think it was Misbarrow Huck and you hear over Richards, it's a pretty <laughs> nice way to sign out. And as you said, he send you, well, did he send you a video on his phone or something? He sent me, a, uh, he did a video which went uh, on social media oh, and right. then he, he rang and left me a message on my phone there. Yeah, cool. which is pretty cool. So, yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. I just remember as well, like the like the crowd sort of when it happened, and and even when you're walking off, you just kind of yeah, it was a pretty pretty amazing moment. And and I looked over at the tent where all my family and friends and that were as well, and they looked like they'd had a couple of beers by that stage. But <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was a pretty amazing moment. It's a nice way to sign off. And some people say, well, surely if you can play like that, why don't you keep playing? But I got out when I still love playing the game and that was I've seen a lot of people hang on because of the fame and the fortune and the adulation as I sort of discussed mm-hmm. earlier on and it just wasn't me I, that's not why for a period of my career that was why I played and I didn't like that um, I played because I loved playing and so when I got out I got out because I loved playing and, and it was the right time to move on and, and it was also the right time for the team to have someone else take, take it in a new direction just a couple of quick ones because you've been bloody good with your time and I know your back's causing you a bit of grief. Um, T20 cricket, you started the IPL first game. You made 158 or something. It was like, well, it just blew everyone's mind what you can do. Um, it's probably on public record. The money side of things, it would be on public record. I should have looked. What's been your... Can you, I ask you what's been your best contract in the IPL? I got one year I had uh, 900,000 US, which is... That's big money. Does it blow your mind? Yeah, it does. I mean, you never make the money that they say that you make because no? it's all pro rata and you right. know, if you miss a game, then you know you, it gets scaled back. But it's huge money. Um, but it's funny. It's kind of like in New Zealand, for instance, like yep. we, we earn 27%. As players, we earn 27% of what New Zealand cricket generates. Of the revenue stream. Yeah, our 28% in Australia, I think it's 27%. Australian cricketers earn seven, eight, ten times more than New yeah. Zealand cricketers. So it's all relative. IPL, I think it's something like 7% is what the, the players generate of what in the actual competition earns. So whilst it's big money, there's probably another level it can go to. Um, and it's all it's all relative. It's because the product is so strong and because people love watching it. And you look at the Big Bash, people turn up and they watch it. The yeah. TV ratings, people watch it. But does that money go into your bank account and you see it there one day and just think... Holy hell! Yeah, well, I'm a good spender as well. Though. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I, do you spend? I love horses. Right, horses, horses. <laughs> that's yeah, where your money horses, goes. So. Right. Yeah. Have you bought no, anything else along the way with it? Um. Well, I've got some business interests and yep. stuff as well. But yeah, it's I mean, cra- like when I say it's crazy money. Don't get me wrong. I think you guys deserve every cent of it. And if it's seven percent, you deserve more than that, as you say. But it's it's changed cricket, hasn't it? I remember when it first started. I was like, guys are going for one point three million dollars mm. for seven weeks. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. Um, yeah, I never got into cricket to earn money. No. Um, the fact that you've earned good money um, is great, but it shouldn't change you as a person either. And I think sometimes some people it does change them. Um, I hope, and I think my closest friends would, yeah. would tell you this, so it hasn't actually changed me at all. Um, you know, you might have a nicer car and a, and a better house, and but and you may have to be at the bar, buy more rounds at the bar, but. <laughs> But money, just like success, like money shouldn't define you either, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah, I hope it hasn't. And uh, But it is nice. It's nice to be paid well for what you do and what you love doing. 
You mentioned the horses. There was I remember you doing a press conference back in Australia and talking about you were naming some of your bats after horses. I name all my bats after different horses, yeah. Right. So champion horses. Um, so at the moment I've got the two bats I'm running for this uh, for the T20. Um, Al Mandon won the Melbourne Cup this year. Lloyd Williams horse. Yep. Lloyd and Nick Williams. Um, and the United States. Another one of their horses, actually. It is, so, yeah. Yeah. So, but I named that quite. It's a bit of a quirk. I quite like doing sort of. What, what were you using when you made the hundred off fifty four balls? Uh, Saverbill, I think it right. was. Right. Okay. Yeah, good strong New Zealand sire. <laughs> <laughs> I was using black caviar when Mitchell Stark bowled me a Yorker at was the he? Wacker and it broke in half. So it was actually quite cool because then the um, uh, the owner of um, black caviar, Neil Wearett, yep. he actually um, threw Jared Waitley wanted. Right. Um, he asked uh, for the bat, so I gave him the bat, and in exchange I got a book, and, and they said that any time I'm over here, if I wanted to go and see Black Caviar, yeah, cool. then, then I could, which is pretty amazing. I'm obviously a, a tragic. So you're getting into that industry now. It, how how many test centuries did you make? You Not gen- that many. You don't know, do you? No, I don't you're know. You're a freak. Not that many. How many of them would you give up to own a Melbourne Cup winner? Oh. Come on. Jeez. No, I, tell you, I don't think I'd give up. Why can't you have both? Well, <laughs> you, well, I love your approach. Maybe you will. Yeah, I want to win. A, I'd love to win a Cox Plate. A well, Cox Melbourne plate. Cup would be amazing. All um, right. Don't get me wrong, but Cox Plate would be wait for age. Yeah, just I mean, the, I think the greatest wait for age race in the world. So it'd be pretty amazing, especially if you breed one. You know, if I've got where to share in Sacred Falls. Um, you know, if you breed the Sacred Falls, Colt went on one. You know, won the Cox Plate. Yeah, it'd be a nice dream. Are we done with tattoos now or continuing along that path? I'm going to finish these ones. These ones, I've still got about 20 hours to do on my back. Have you? What's on your yeah. back? Oh, my kids' names and, and some, yeah, just some artwork around it. But, so, yeah. Do they hurt? Can do, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, they, yeah, of course they do. But it's all worth it. Oh, everyone, everyone has their own opinions on tattoos and probably polarises people as well, especially in a cricketing world. Um, but for me, my tattoo is a representation of some of the things which are close to me and what I've been able to achieve in my life. And to be honest, if you take it or leave it, if you're going to judge people because of their tattoos, then to me, they're not necessarily people I'd like to spend time with anyway. Yeah, fair enough to you. Mate, I just want to read you something, something that you said in your Spirit of Cricket lecture. I feel incredibly fortunate to have played the game for so long and to have had the experiences I've had while I've earned more than a pie, a pint and a punt per day through being a professional cricketer, I've retired from first-class cricket and international cricket with, with not the memories of the aggregates or the runs or the wickets or the catches or even the matches won. Rather, I cherish the memories of playing with and against so many wonderful people, as my father did before me. Thank you. Is that what you've achieved? Yeah, I reckon. That's... It's a cool thing to say. Yeah. Well, you know, sort of, like, all the other, st- all the other stuff's cool, but like realistically, like you get into the game to to create memories and also to create friends and and long term friendships. So it doesn't, it's not runs wickets on your gravestone, you know. It's kind of yeah, loving father, you know, um, uh, like uh, great husband, sort of, and friend to many type, and that's kind of. Like cricket is, is great and I love it. Um, I love playing it, but it shouldn't define you either. And I think that's um you know, that's what hopefully I've been able to get out of it. 
If I may be permitted to make one final comment, you said, then it is this. Cricket is a wonderful game that is played in many parts of the world. It is unique and should be treasured and preserved. Players and administrators alike are guardians. I think by the way you played it and what you did with the situation with Chris Cairns and things like that, I think if people would say if you left the game in a better place, no doubt, no doubt, which I would have thought is the ultimate compliment. Yeah, hopefully. I I definitely feel like I've grown as a person from being involved in the game. Um, I think the game's given me a lot more than I've given it, um, and I feel incredibly lucky to have, have been a part of it, and hopefully I've made a bit of an impact on it. Um, but look, the game will move on, mm. and uh, you know, some it will head in a different direction very soon. But you know, I've been lucky enough to be a part of it, and and it's uh, it's provided me with an amazing life and and some great memories as well. We don't like to be too serious on this show. This is the way I always finish it, Baz. And uh, listeners to the Howie Games, which I hope you will become one now, uh, <laughs> will know that I have two kids, a daughter who's just turned seven. Uh, that's Adam Gilchrist texting me, have you done Baz yet? I've got some stories for you. Uh, maybe we will leave that one away. Really? I don't think we need to go with that. <laughs> two kids, um, a seven-year-old who operates under the name of The Pickle, for some reason, and my five-year-old who woke up one day and changed his name from Max said, Dad, I want to be called the Big Penguin now. <laughs> so he just rolls as the Big Penguin. So every time I have a chat with them and normally get them to record on my phone a question because I tell them what they're about. Now, they've had to send me this today because I haven't seen them for a week. So this is their question for you, Baz, from the Pickle and the Big Penguin. Hey, Baz, the Big Penguin and the Pickle here. Daddy says over the fence is out, and we don't like that rule. Was it like that at your house too, Baz? You must have got out that way a lot if it was. They hate it when they hit it over the fence. They freaking hate That's it. outstanding. When I say, you're out. And the Big Penguin's like, No! I reckon Dad needs to just spend a bit of money buying some more tennis balls. Well, you shouldn't get penalised for that, surely. Well, we're not all on IPL wages. Maybe I need a bigger house. <laughs> was it like that in your backyard is what they want to know? Was six over the fence out? Uh, it was. Um, no, it was actually, which I I had issues with as I well. I you did. Yeah, I, well, only because it's sort of, you know, like you shouldn't get penalised for that. Like That's kind of the game. People mm. people like to pay to watch that sort of behaviour. So they do. <laughs> shouldn't get penalised at a young age, but... I reckon you should, your kids should definitely carry on with that protest. All right, I'll let them know. Hey, Baz, I appreciate your time. You're off to play for the Brisbane Heat tonight. Um, everyone's loving your work, but I really appreciate you sitting down and talking about the good times and probably some of the tougher times as well, mate. It's a ripping episode and I really appreciate it. Thanks, Harry. Appreciate it. I'm pleased Gilly's questions didn't come through earlier. <laughs> we might do that for the After Dark <laughs> session of the Howie Games. Good on you, mate. Ta. Hope you enjoyed listening to the guru that is Baz. What a tremendous fella. And remember, Kumar or KP next Thursday on the Howie Games. Everyone's a winner. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Can we go play now? Listener.